Thanks for listening and sharing Our Body Politic. As you know, we're new and creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcast on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. We're looking at the fallout from former President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial and diving into what herd immunity from COVID-19 looks like. Charles Blow has been a New York Times op-ed columnist since 2008. For years, he was the only Black columnist at the newspaper and the only Southerner. He moved back to the South from New York to Georgia while writing his book, The Devil You Know. In it, he proposes a novel way to build Black voting power, getting more Black people to move to the South. This is a little bit of Charles reading from his book. We need a block of states, a region, in which we and our children are equally conditioned to success, support, and safety. We need a space in which Black imagination is equally encouraged where we recognize that Black children dream too. Charles, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. You know, let's just jump right in here. Um, I want to start in an unlikely place for a Black power manifesto, as the subtitle of your book reads, and that is Vermont. I have had very nice trips to the Ben and Jerry's factory. Um, I don't think of it as directly relating to Black power, but you make a persuasive case. What are you talking about? Well, Vermont uh, is an interesting case in uh, where mass migration for the specific intent of changing the political dynamic of a state uh, has worked. Uh, 1972, Two young Yale students write Yale uh, law students write in the Yale Law Review uh, paper called Jamestown '70. Uh, this is after young hippies across America have been protesting against Nixon's execution of the Vietnam War, but Nixon continues to do it exactly the way he wants to do it. They have very little impact on how he does that, and they make those two law students make a case that what you can do is what they called radical federalism. You can move in mass and change the dynamics of a state. And young white hippies from all over the Northeast, they do it. And even though that wasn't enough to make them a majority in the state, this massive influx of young, vibrant, activist-minded liberals change Vermont from one of the most conservative states in America to now it is one of the most liberal states in the union. It is the state that gives us two of our most liberal senators, including Bernie Sanders. That is the power of what migration can do. And it has been proven by these young white liberals in the 70s. So let's say that... um I'm someone who's a Black person who's in Vermont, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Pitch me on what you're suggesting in your book. Right. So 
what I'm saying to Black America that if you want um, uh, to do what the young white hippies did in Vermont, which is to move to a region, exert uh, political power, maybe even move in great enough numbers to make yourselves majorities in those states, which in many of states, you were the majority after the Civil War or near the majority after the Civil War. The only reason that you are not there now is because of white terror chasing you out of those bases. If you want to reclaim that power, you should move there. It is for the young, primarily. It is for those who do not feel that the space that they're in values them, that they have enough power to demand of the power structures that they change and accommodate and see them as truly human, truly equal, and truly worthy of access to the exact same opportunities as other people are. If that is not your reality, maybe you found the place you're supposed to be. If it is your reality that, that, that those things do not apply to you where you are, there is another option where you can exert enough power to bend the system to make it more amenable to you. You talk about Georgia's population and how it shifted between the censuses. Um, tell us a little bit more about kind of, you know, how Georgia became more Black in recent history and how that may have affected the current uh body politic, you know, um, certainly in the last election cycle. Absolutely. This last election cycle was the first time that Black people were the majority of a coalition that elected a senator. And they didn't just elect one, they elected two. Right. And there are two prongs to why that was possible. The one that is prominent is what the activists did and organizers did on the ground. Tons of groups, including most notably Stacey Abrams, who's a superwoman of this entire story. But the other side of that was reverse migration of Black people from the North and West to Georgia. Those organizers just had more bodies to organize. The Black population of Georgia doubles between 1990 and 2020 from 1.7 million people to over 3.4 million people. With this election, Black people made up 33% of the population of Georgia. And that was part of the tipping of Georgia. It's true that younger people tend to be those doing what people are calling the reverse migration, going to the Black Meccas. And um, you write about how your son had an experience on campus. Explain a little bit about what this says about racism in the North. Well, um, one um, major theme of the book is dispelling the myth that racism is sectorial and isolated to the South in that geography. I make an argument that, you know, that I see racism as kind of um, having developmental cycles that in the South is just an old man. It's kind of kind of made uh, some sort of peace with itself that hasn't disappeared by any means. It's just that it learned how to get along. People learned how to function with this racism in their midst. And in the North, it is acting like a young teenage boy acting out using many of the same tactics 
that the South used when it was younger. It is using militarization of the police and employing the police in the active, overt oppression uh, uh, and segregation of black and brown people. They are hyper-segregating real estate and therefore, because of the way our schooling is set up, schooling. The most segregated school system in America is not in the South. It is New York State, mostly because of the hyper-segregation that's happening in New York City. And if you look at the most segregated cities in America, they are these states that people migrated to, Chicago, for instance. Yeah. You talk very movingly about Tamir Rice. You also talk about um, the ways in which white, the, the, the trope of protecting white femininity is used against Black men in particular. And I can't help but think about the charges recently being dropped against Amy Cooper, the white woman who made a false call to police about a Black male bird yes. watcher. Um, and so you write about that case and others. Mm-hmm. Why is it important to the context of your book? Well, in the same way that it's important to knock down the mythology that racism only exists in the South, it is also important to knock down the idea that white supremacy is only confined to men and not women. That the entire apparatus, uh, regardless of gender, has a role and always has played a role from the time of enslavement when 40% of those who owned, who enslaved, African people were white women. You have to track that history over the entire course of American history to uh, to unravel that. Even up until the insurgency, it is not just men. That is a woman on that bullhorn telling them which places to go into as if she has cased that building before. This is not just a white male problem. This is a problem of white supremacy that expands uh, and encompasses all white supremacists, regardless of gender. I certainly have seen um, coalitions of many different types operate in in Georgia, for example. There was strong Asian-American organizing. There was strong Latino organizing. What is the role of multiracial coalition building in the context of this idea of specifically and explicitly building Black power, Black political power? Well, I think coalitions are wonderful when and if they work. However, Black power cannot be dependent on convincing someone else to see you and value you and therefore join in arms with you. Otherwise, Black people are always in a position of pleading. And that and pleading is the opposite of power. The uh, coalitions are great, but the data suggests that uh, they have limitations. When I looked at Project Implicit's data on implicit bias, which they were able to break down by racial group, they found that there was just as much pro-white, anti-Black bias among Hispanics as there was among white people, and that the group with the most pro-white, anti-Black bias was Southeast Asians. So, you know, that is not to pick on any particular ethnic or racial group. It is just to lay out the facts of how people behave and how what the research says about that behavior. And so we are always working not only against white supremacy, but against anti 
blackness. Well, Charles, I wanted to end by asking if you could read a little bit of your book. Sure. We need a space in which Black narrative can exist and must exist outside its relationship to anti-Black white supremacy. The Black story must be much more than slavery, oppression, and poverty. We need a space in which Black beauty is equally honored and exalted. Charles Blow, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Charles Blow, author of The Devil You Know, a Black Power Manifesto. This week in our public health coverage, I've invited Dr. Ashish Jha to tell us more about why we should think about COVID-19 vaccination as a global effort. Dr. Jha is Dean of Brown University School of Public Health, a practicing physician, and a globally recognized expert on pandemic responses. Welcome, Dr. Jha. Thank you so much for having me here. So we've been following a lot of your Twitter threads about vaccination. Um, Just give us an update on how you're feeling now about the effort. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about where we are on the vaccine uh, rollout, on on having vaccines. Uh, These vaccines that we have, two of them authorized already and the third one coming soon. Really terrific vaccines. Obviously a little frustrating right now that uh, people who want them can't get them. Uh, But there's so many coming that I think certainly by the time we get to May or June and maybe even earlier than that, uh, I think we're going to have lots of vaccines available and Uh, Anybody who wants a vaccine should be able to get one. There are other people who um, are not particularly concerned about getting the vaccine because they think that they are, their community is headed for um, herd immunity. And overall, from what I understand, our goal is to get a form of herd immunity, mainly through vaccination. Can you explain what herd immunity is and talk about how it does or doesn't happen? Yeah, so herd immunity is the idea that there are enough people who have immunity in a population that the virus can no longer uh, spread effectively over time. It doesn't mean that when you have herd immunity that no one ever gets infected. It's just that you don't tend to get big outbreaks, that outbreaks are self-limited and they kind of fizzle out because so many people are immune. And And the idea behind it is really straightforward, right? If I'm infected and I'm in a community that has herd immunity... There can be, every person I interact with, almost all of them will be immune. I won't be able to spread it to enough other people. And, and that's how outbreaks sort of come to an end. The question on this pandemic, on this virus is, how much immunity do we need? And there are different estimates, uh, probably ranging from 70 to 90%. Now, you can get there through natural infections will give you immunity, and then vaccines will give you immunity. The upsides of getting there through vaccines are two of them. One is people don't get sick and die. That's a pretty big upside. Uh, Much, much better to get immunity from getting the vaccine than from getting infected. We know there are long-term complications of the infection. But the other part, which I think will surprise people, is most of the evidence so far says that vaccines give you much stronger and more durable immunity than natural infection. And this is a surprise to people because they think, well, natural infection has got to be better. 
No, not necessarily. And there's, I think, pretty good evidence now that two doses of a vaccine, uh, certainly Moderna and Pfizer, and probably even just one dose alone of Johnson & Johnson, is going to give you a much more robust immune response. And you don't just care about having immunity right now. You care about having immunity for the long run. And that's why I think a vaccine-based strategy is so much better than letting people get infected and sick and die. So what about the variants that are propagating? Should we be concerned about whether or not this will um, affect how effective the vaccines are in the U.S. and the world? There are several different variants out there. Uh, Most of them look very, very susceptible to the vaccine. The one that has given us some pause is the variant, uh, what we call B1351. It's the one from South Africa. And that one uh, still works pretty well, or the vaccine still works pretty well against it, uh, but it's a little bit less effective. That's sort of the best kind of assessment we have right now. We're still learning a lot. So I think our vaccines are going to be fine for these set of variants. The question that I worry about is what about future variants that might end up evading our vaccines? Uh, That's the challenge in front of us. Finally, um, let's talk a little bit about the world. The United States um, during the past administration was not particularly engaged with a lot of the superstructures of how the U.S. uh, approaches the world, including the World Health Organization. Now we're re-entering some of these relationships. Why is that important, if it's important? Yeah, it's important, and I'm going to actually argue that it's not enough. And so let me make the case. First and foremost, we all have to remember this is a global pandemic. It's not an American pandemic. It's not, a, it's not something you can solve domestically alone. And because it's a global pandemic, it's going to come to an end when the whole world is vaccinated and the whole world is able to bring it to an end. We are not going to be able to bring the pandemic to an end, even for Americans, if we only focus on vaccinating Americans. Imagine the following scenario. Imagine it's fall of 2021. We've all gotten vaccinated. Life is starting to return back to normal. And there are large outbreaks happening, let's say, in India. And one of those large outbreaks leads to a variant that is resistant to our vaccines. I can promise you those variants will spread quickly around the world and may land itself in the United States. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves going, oh, my God, now there's this virus circulating that none of us have immunity to. That's what happens with global pandemics. You can't stamp it out. It's like a fire in a neighborhood. And if your entire neighborhood is aflame, you don't say, well, I'm going to put my house out and then and then go back and start living in it. Uh, the problem is you got to get all the entire neighborhood's fire put out. And the last point on this is, you know, America's had a long history of leadership on this, very bipartisan. The move of the last president, uh, Donald Trump, was particularly upsetting because it just squandered decades of moral leadership that we had. Given the size of the problem, we got to do much more than just rejoining WHO. We really have to double down on a global effort to vaccinate everybody. Dr. Jaw, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University. The Golden Globes are a week away, so we've invited Casey Mendoza to break down all we need to know about who is nominated and who's not. She's our Business of Entertainment contributor. Hi, Casey. Hi, Farai. 
It's always great to talk to you. And now is must be a such a busy season for you because there's <laughs> the award shows. And they have been bad at highlighting and celebrating diversity in major films over the years. Um, has that changed this year? Well, see, you're absolutely right in saying that award shows have been historically bad at highlighting diversity. But ever since uh, the Oscar So White controversy of, I think, 2015, there have been small steps towards improvement. Like I remember last year, Rami Youssef and Aquafina getting recognized at the Golden Globes um, for their acting roles. But even if you like still take a look at the bigger picture, it's still not perfect. And this year, at least with the Golden Globe so far, critics are pointing out some major snubs. Um, the TV show I May Destroy You, which is helmed by actress, writer, and showrunner Michaela Cole, was critically acclaimed and frequently heralded as one of the best shows of 2020, but it was completely ignored by the Golden Globes. And in the best drama category, the Golden Globes also failed to recognize movies like Da Five Bloods from Spike Lee, um, One Night in Miami by Regina King, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Judas and the Black Messiah, the fact that I could name all of these titles off the top of my head um, because they were so well received in 2020 and predicted to be major front runners in these races and yet be ignored and shut out by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has been very baffling and very frustrating in these conversations about diversity and entertainment. Yeah, so when you think about that, um, who did actually make the cut in the, the Golden Globes in terms of women of color? Yeah, so some of the categories did a much better job. You know, in the Best Actress category, we have nominations for Viola Davis in her role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Andra Day for her role in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Um, and then even in the Best Director category, which is I'm, which is what I'm most excited about, um, the Golden Globes is celebrating Regina King, who we raved about the last time I was here uh, for, again, her movie um, uh, One Night in Miami, and then also Chloe Zhao, who directed Nomadland. How much does it matter for people who are white to speak up? I was uh, noticing that, you know, before we spoke, there's an article by Deborah Kopakin, who's a, a, a journalist and now screenwriter who I happen to know from, you know, college and post-college life, uh, that said, I'm a writer on Emily in Paris. I May Destroy You deserved a Golden Globe nomination. How much does being an ally or being a self-aware white person in Hollywood matter to the industry or, or like many things, is it not going to transform the industry? So as a woman of color that covers this industry, it was very validating to hear Deborah Copagan's perspective. So I don't want to make fun of Emily in Paris because I think the internet has done that enough already. It was very validating to see a writer from that show um, recognize Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, because for the past year, I May Destroy You has been just praised for its nuanced portrayal of sexual assault and PTSD. Um, it's It was amazing to see uh, Michaela Cole tell that story in a way that was so personal and so introspective and also make it um, intersectional. And again, I don't want to compare it to Emily in Paris because I don't think that's the conversation uh, that should be happening. Um, but to have more people in the industry say, you know, this art is important, even if it comes at the expense of my art, uh, I think it'll, you know, help 
make the conversation about diversity in entertainment more inclusive, more collaborative, and more understanding about um, what deserves to be recognized, if that makes sense. I also want to ask about Minari. Uh, The Golden Globes categorized it as a foreign language film, but is it? And how is that playing out? I want to say that Minari was one of my favorite movies that I've seen recently. It is not just a movie that was written and produced and distributed by American creators and American companies. It is also at its heart a story about the American dream. Um, You know, it's about an immigrant that wants to, uh, you know, start a farm in Arkansas. It's about the Arkansas community that like welcomes him uh, for the most part. And having grown up as, you know, a second generation Asian American, I saw a lot of my childhood in the film. And the reason I think it's controversial that this film has been um, categorized as a foreign language film kind of makes it feel uh, alienating or othered as if this isn't an American story or um, it is a foreign story, which it isn't. Um, and this has been a controversy that's happened at the Golden Globes before. Uh, last year, The Farewell was also nominated in the foreign language category. Um, it, 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 for a fun statistic for you is that um, eight films from the U.S. have been nominated for the Foreign Language Award. Um, one of them is Dreams, which came out in 1990s. It is Uh, mostly in Japanese and French. Another one is um, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is French. Um, The Kite Runner, which is in English, Urdu and Dari. So many of these titles, um, despite the fact they're U.S. films, are are categorized as foreign language. And it, like, highlights this discrepancy in Hollywood over what is foreign and what is American, even though the entertainment industry, I think right now, Uh, more than ever before, is global and stretches beyond Hollywood. So I think overall, um, this controversy isn't just about Minari. It's about the perceptions of, again, diversity, um, but also what stories are universal or what stories deserve recognition. So let me end on uh, a broader question for the award shows. We've been talking about the Golden Globes. There's also the Oscars and in general award shows, not just for the movies, but also some of the music related award shows. The audiences have been dropping. And so how does that change the game both for the Golden Globes and for the Oscars? Absolutely. And I think the pandemic is um, a big reason why audience numbers are dropping. You know, the Emmys last year had one of the worst viewerships it's ever had historically. But it's hard to say what the solution is or what should come next, because overall, the entertainment industry does have to find new ways to appeal to an audience that is maybe jaded about these award shows, maybe apathetic, but overall also just, you know, out of touch a little bit, um, because Award shows are essentially highlighting celebrities. Um, They're highlighting producers and studio executives um, who have the money to throw at these projects. And it makes it like hard to watch when it's been such a difficult year for so many people. In regards to like the pageantry of award shows, a lot still needs to be done um, to make it accessible. All right, Casey, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Fry. That was Casey Mendoza, our Business of Entertainment contributor and a reporter at Newsy. You can find her latest articles on Newsy.com. 
Each week, we ask listeners to call the Speak Line to tell us what's on your mind. We've been asking you, what is one thing you learned about yourself in the pandemic that makes you happy? We had a few people write in last week. You share how you've learned that you're resilient and stronger mentally than you knew. One listener wrote in to say she'd come to feel more secure as a dancer. She's using dance to process her emotions about all the issues facing her as a Black woman in the U.S. right now. And one of you said you discovered you were secretly an introvert. To share your thoughts with us, you can call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to ourbodypolitik.show and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. Each week, we invite two fantastic experts to join us on Sippin' the Political Tea. That's our weekly political roundtable with our body politic contributors, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th, and Jess Morales-Riquetto, Civic Engagement Director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Welcome back, Jess. Hey! Aaron, it's another week in politics. Welcome back. So it is, my friend. Thanks for having me. So look, let's just get into it. Uh, What stuck out to both of you most this week in politics? Uh, Jess, let's start with you. Well, I'm really heads down in immigration land this week. So it's a pretty big policy week um, over in immigration. We have the border reopening this week. Uh, The big, long-promised Biden immigration bill drops this week in Congress. So I've just been totally consumed around what's happening there. And, you know, it feels good to be on the offensive instead of on the defensive. Farad, what about you? There's this journalist I like. I think her name is Hines or um, Ham or I I don't know. But she did this great interview with the vice president. Oh, wait, it's you. It's (laughs) Congratulations. Tell us about it. Uh, Yeah, turns out I hadn't had a chance to touch base with Vice President Harris since she became uh, the second most powerful person in the country. But yeah, we had a chance to sit down to do the first national print interview that she's done since taking office and uh, had a pretty robust conversation, mostly centered around uh, the new administration's response to uh, the pandemic and the relief package they're trying to get passed. Uh, They've been in office for a month already, if you can believe it. And uh, what she had to say around just uh, making sure that the rollout is is equitable, uh, focusing on the women who have been disproportionately economically impacted uh, by this and, and, and making sure that, you know, she fulfills a great sense of responsibility that she feels, uh, especially around uh, the Black folks who we know are disproportionately dying uh, from this disease, uh, really was, was a very interesting conversation. So uh, thanks for the shout out. So while we're on the topic of this administration, let's talk about President Biden's town hall on CNN this past Tuesday. Here's a clip. We need student loan forgiveness beyond the potential $10,000 your administration has proposed. We need at least a $50,000 minimum. What will you do to make that happen? I will not make that happen. Jess, what are your thoughts about this moment? This is a really important moment um, in the fight against loan forgiveness and um, you know, the people who are doing debt strikes. Folks don't have enough money right now. And one of the things that would help is if they didn't have to pay $1,200 student loan checks every month. And there is a you know pause on student loan payments now, but real debt forgiveness is what activists have been asking for for a very long time. 
Um, and it's what young people have overwhelmingly supported. My hope is that um, there will be more pressure from groups to make sure that this can actually happen because the fact that he, you know, it just comes through so clearly, like, I'm not going to do that, um, means that they are getting pressure on it, that they're feeling that this is important. It's coming up as an issue. And I think we've seen that Joe Biden can be movable. And this is a really key place where he needs to move. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it. I also saw, you know, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and, and Senator Elizabeth Warren putting out a statement really telling folks to hold the line on this and, and that the $50,000 number is is really what is needed to uh, address the, the racial wealth gap in this country. Farai, what did you think about the idea that President Biden said, you know, I will not make this happen? You know, it, it didn't surprise me in the sense that I think that President Biden is trying to um, hold his place as a centrist, but this country doesn't really have a center right now. We are, we're kind of in a food fight and the center is not always right. Um, I think if you look at something like the pre-civil uh, rights era, the center said that Black people were lesser than and didn't deserve voting rights. So this is one of those cases where we need to look at the facts. And as you said, this not only could help millennials and Gen Z who are struggling in particular with the debt because the, the cost of college rose sharply over time. So baby boomers didn't pay as much for college, even going to great schools, but it also would close the racial wealth gap. So I hope that we keep talking about this with facts in mind. Yeah. Well, Farai, you interviewed somebody with a plan for building Black political power, uh, and that's writer and columnist Charles Blow. Let's listen to a clip. With this election, Black people made up 33% of the population of Georgia, and that was part of the tipping of Georgia. So tell me about his argument. You know, this is absolutely fascinating. Um, Charles Blow, who is a New York Times columnist, very powerful, uh, originally from Louisiana, an all-Black community in Louisiana, went to a Black high school, went to a historically Black college, has now moved back to the South, this time to Georgia, and talks about how if Black folks moved en masse roughly about half of the Black folks who don't live in these states, to the kind of southeastern states all the way up to uh, Maryland and Delaware, Black folks could control electoral college votes. Not every nation has a winner-take-all system the way that America does, but this is in some ways to me not only an adaptation, an idea that's an adaptation to the racial politics of America, but to the electoral college. Um, so, you know, I'm curious what you think, Aaron, about that being someone originally from Georgia. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting uh, premise. And uh, I think that what I'm curious about, you know, he emphasizes cities. And, and I wonder about valuing rural Black voters, many of whom already kind of live in the South and are waiting to be mobilized and invested in, as we saw in Georgia with folks like Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown, uh, really seeing them as just as important as voters as, as folks in places like Atlanta or, uh, you know, Charlotte or, you know, et cetera. So I, th I think exploring that as part of um, not necessarily a, a multiracial coalition, but even, uh, you know, intramurally with, within the Black community, uh, bringing rural voters into this conversation a lot more, uh, I, I think has to be part of this conversation going forward because we've seen that it can be part of a winning strategy, uh, especially in uh, the deep south. 
So let's move on to the acquittal of former President Trump on charges of incitement of insurrection. Here's a clip of Representative Ted Lieu, a Democrat and one of the impeachment managers. You know, I'm not afraid of Donald Trump running again in four years. I'm afraid he's going to run again and lose because he can do this again. So, Jess, what were your thoughts when Representative Lou said that? You know, the threat of Trump and Trumpism is still very present. And I think that because we won the election, because there's a new president in the White House, and, and frankly, because of the rhetoric that many are, are putting forward, including President Biden, it's like, now let's put that behind us and move forward. But Donald Trump is a former president Given his importance in pop culture, even before he was president on The Apprentice, in movies, you know, all those kinds of things, it really is saying something that he has more power now. And there is a base that is, frankly, rabid for him. We saw, like, what that base will do at the Capitol um, during the insurrection. And there is a narrative that he can be building for the next four years with that base, which has won him an election. Um that's about, you know, the sort of aggrieved economic insecurity, the disrespect and all that stuff that he can sort of apply to himself resonates with them as well. And so there is a real danger. You know, the fact that the Senate did not impeach President Trump is a really big problem because he makes more money the more he's in the limelight. And that's what he really cares about, staying in the public eye making money. Um, And if he thinks that being president is going to help him do that, he could run again, even if he wants to lose because he doesn't actually want to be president. He can waste all of our time. And whenever we're kind of in the rear view mirror on these kinds of questions, we sort of are like, oh, well, it worked out in the end. He lost. But actually, you know, this is a, a person who was like just next door to authoritarian, you know, the, the slow descent of four years into fascism. So we should be very afraid of this. Um, and I, I agree with Representative Liu. It, it would be actually very scary if he did run again and lose. And we were just in this perpetuative cycle of using our democracy as, you know, his sort of like new television show. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've seen this week with uh, his ability to still command a platform, right, to, to be able to go on national television and do mm-hmm. interviews or uh, the energy at the state party uh, still very much seems to be a- around uh, the former president and, and also uh, censoring uh, members of Congress who go against uh, former President Trump and uh, the big lie that he uh, continues to promote about uh, the idea that the election was rigged and that he uh, won when we, in fact, know that that was not the case. Yeah, let me just jump in here with some of the fallout in the Republican Party. After he voted to acquit former President Trump, Senator Mitch McConnell said this. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. All right, help me make sense of this. This is, uh, there is no sense to be made. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But it also makes complete sense because this is what happens when you try to have your cake and eat it too. And let me just say, I am the queen of that. I am the queen of like trying to like lose a little weight. So I'm going to have my cake and then I'm going to eat it and then I'm going to be mad if it doesn't come off my waistline. And essentially, if I can use a dieting analogy, Mitch McConnell wants Trump light. There is no Trump light. You acquitted him. 
during impeachment. And then you come back and you're like, but what you did was awful. And now he has lost on both sides. He didn't stand up for uh, impeachment, which apparently he believes that the president did incite. And he had the, the power, let's not forget, he had the power to bring the Senate into session while Trump was still president. So he could have changed the whole game here because his whole argument is like, oh, we can't impeach someone who's no longer president. So he wants to go with that. And at the same time, he doesn't want to provoke the fans of Trump into hating him. But it didn't work. So House Speaker Pelosi has ordered a 9-11-style commission to take a look at what happened on January 6th. Jess, how do you feel about this? If I'm being honest, I just feel like a commission. I know that's like how Congress works, but like, it's a little, (laughs) it's a little tepid for me, maybe is the right way to say it. Um, But I think really important, you know, I have a number of uh, relationships with members of Congress. And when you talk to them about this, they are really, really scared. Like they are actually literally scared for their lives. Um, And that's just like not something that we should be okay with as a country. Hmm. Yeah, Farai, what are your thoughts on this? I feel about commissions kind of like I feel about diversity committees in journalism <laughs> workspaces. It's yes. like it's a good way to waste a lot of time. Well, look, there is a lot of talk about what accountability does look like, like censuring Donald Trump. Here's Speaker Nancy Pelosi in a clip. We censure people for using stationery for the wrong purpose. We don't censure people for inciting insurrection that kills people in the Capitol. Farai, are they considering this? And would it mean anything? What would mean something is actually a ramification. And I'm not clear that a censure actually has much of a ramification. Now, one of the important points about impeachment is that had the president been fully impeached, he would no longer get Secret Service protection, which is costing me, you know, I, I pay my taxes. I, in fact, once, uh, you know, earlier this year or last year, rather, put my taxes on the Internet to show exactly how much I paid in 2018 compared to the president who paid $750. So I will be subsidizing his security and his children's security for his lifetime when Mitch McConnell said that he actually did incite uh you know, an insurrection at the Capitol. He could run for president again. Now, I'm not clear whether or not that's even remotely likely, but he has that right. So so a censure doesn't accomplish any of the things that an impeachment would. So there you go. Yeah, I guess I'm just unclear on uh, what, what censuring would, would mean for him, especially when, like I said, he can go on, on platforms like Fox and OAN, uh, it kind of at will uh, to, to spread lies about election fraud and, and, and Black voters in this country. So let's talk about all the other ways, aside from impeachment, uh, now that that's out of the way, that that people are demanding accountability from former President Trump. Representative Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi, filed a civil lawsuit against the former president and his attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Jess, do you think this move could be more fruitful? I mean, I think that in Congress, they love symbolic actions. This is somewhere between a symbolic action and actually helpful. Um, The civil lawsuit is important. It is the first civil action taken against the former president related to the attack. That feels like something that um, is a kind of a shift uh, from where we've been. And it means that, you know, President Trump and other people in his orbit, like Giuliani, would be subject to discovery and depositions. We might find out more information 
Um, and, you know, potentially there is like, you know, former President Trump has to pay money. Um, so I, I think that matters a lot. And I think that Representative Thompson filing it is also important. He is the lone Democrat um, from the Mississippi delegation. And I think he's a very prominent um, kind of senior um, uh, Democrat in Mississippi. So that also feels like a big um, statement from him, particularly, you know, given what we were talking about earlier about the South and, and building power in the South for African-American folks. And so I think that there is something really interesting about him kind of taking matters into his own hands, even as a representative, even as that plays out kind of in the congressional process. Yeah, well, we know that that Representative Benny Thompson filed that civil lawsuit in his personal capacity, and that was the first civil action filed against the former president related to that attack at the U.S. Capitol. But Representative Thompson was also chair of, of the House Homeland Security Committee, right? And and with the uh, issue of, of white supremacy and, and uh, as, as the major domestic terrorism priority uh, of this government, identified as such, uh, what he does in his official capacity as well in response to this could be yet another avenue of accountability. Farai, what about other ways people are demanding accountability? Well, there's a lot of fallout about the whole froth of different ways that um, uh, Trump and his allies uh, sought to undermine the election. And, you know, I, I think just to do a little aside, a quick aside, I think that one thing that happened in America is that people assumed that we were not privy to some of the ravages that happen when democracy becomes unstable. Like the state of America's democracy has actually been downgraded by several international measures. And we uh, sometimes love talking about people in banana republics, et cetera, but we could become one if we're not careful. So what's happening that's more constructive in terms of looking at this is that uh, organizations like Lawyers Defending American Democracy have filed an ethics complaint against Rudy Giuliani saying that he, quote, violated multiple provisions of the New York Rules of Professional Conduct while representing former President Donald Trump and the Trump campaign. There's officials in Michigan seeking the disbarment of Sidney Powell, the Georgia Bar opening an investigation as well because you know, we can think about all of the pressure that, you know, basically uh, the Trump campaign put on various states and, and various legislators. And so I, I think that all of this is productive. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for now. It was nice talking with you, Jess. Thank you. So great to talk with you. And as always, nice to chat with you again, Farai. Great talking, Aaron, and great interview with the vice president. Thanks again. That was Aaron Haynes of the 19th and Jess Morales Riquetto from the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Our booker is Julie Zan. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt. 
Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.